Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, including my favorite, History. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will support this podcast and get a free audiobook, a two-for-one deal. Given my subject matter today, I'm recommending Gettysburg by Stephen W. Sears. This is a book I've read and listened to on Audible so I can compare. It's an excellent history of the most famous battle of the American Civil War. The narration flows very well, it's very precise, pronounces everything great, and it's very easy to listen to. Great listen, great narration, one of my faves. And it's free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1861. The place, Oklahoma. The Civil War has come, but North versus South doesn't tell the whole story. What happens to the five nations of the Indian Territory, the Native Americans cult between blue and gray? I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 36, Between Blue and Gray. Guys, this is an amazing story, a subject I thought would be relatively small, but ended up not being small at all. This is the story of those American Indian nations caught between the Union and Confederacy during the Civil War, the five nations of the Indian Territory. Guys, this one gets dark, rough in some places. Not going to be sunshine and rainbows today. One thing before we get started. There are multiple different ways to refer to the indigenous peoples of North America. Whenever possible, I will refer to people in this story by their specific identity, so Cherokee or Muscogee. When I refer to them in general, the U.S. Census Bureau reported in 1995 that instead of the equally acceptable term Native American, about 50% of people who identify as indigenous prefer the older term American Indian, and that is the word the U.S. Census still uses. Since I believe in calling people what they want to be called as much as possible, just a general principle, I will use the term American Indian, or just Indian, in this podcast. I mean no disrespect either way. If Native American is your preferred usage, just substitute that. My apologies to anyone who is offended by this term. The fault, if any, is my own. Moving along. Guys, remember, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This is a messy episode, lots of discussion about slavery and no-holds-barred violence. This one is brutal. Podcast is still PG-13, but there are some bad words in here, including one used by me personally for emphasis. I got excited, so the Unknown Soldiers podcast is about to drop its first F-bomb. But that's okay, because PG-13 gets one or two F-bombs max, they just can't be sexual. Language is almost clean, content is definitely not. All my sources and some maps and some images will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want my sources, that's where they'll be. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are mine. 
Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. The American Civil War was my first historical obsession, way back when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Anyone who knew me had to put up with a never-ending stream of trivia, including one fact that seemed relatively minor at the time. Here's your trivia question. Who was the last Confederate general to surrender in the Civil War? The answer is Brigadier General Stand Weighty on June 23rd, 1865, two and a half months after Lee surrendered at Appomattox. What also made Stand Weighty different from every other Confederate general is that he was Cherokee. He was an American Indian. But I never really thought about that as a 10 or 11 year old. It never occurred to me to ask why Stand Weighty would side with the Confederacy or what the Cherokee or other American Indians were even doing in this conflict. The Civil War is usually perceived as a war fought almost entirely by white Americans, including some black people here and there, by North and South, by the blue and the gray. That's the popular perception. It never even crossed my mind to wonder, what about the people caught between? An old friend of mine suggested that I do an episode on Stand Weighty. He said something like, I bet there's a story there. At first I just humored him, but what I discovered after even a little research shocked me. This was a much bigger story than I thought. An entire front, an entire theater of the Civil War that I knew nothing about, with origins long before the war and repercussions into the 21st century. Virtually absent from most general histories, almost completely forgotten in the larger blue versus gray narrative. Here, here are some unknown soldiers of a very famous war. My focus today is the experience of the American Indian during the Civil War. In particular, the people living in Indian Territory, what is today called Oklahoma. Most of them were members of the Five Nations, sometimes called the Five Civilized Tribes. Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, aka Creek, and Seminole. When the Civil War began, the Indian Territory became no man's land, and the Five Nations were caught between the two sides, between Blue and Gray. But the American Indians weren't just helpless victims or simple savages, the way they're characterized in most of American history. This is not just a story of what happened to the Indians, but what they did. They created their own histories and made hard choices, even when those choices were forced on them. This goes with my theme for the season, that people we don't normally think of as protagonists, as the movers and shakers and makers of history, were. They had agency. They were the heroes of their own stories, especially, and sometimes most importantly, when those stories were tragedies. Today, we'll be talking about the American Civil War, as seen through the eyes of the five nations of the Indian Territory. We're going to explain who these people were and how they got there, which means talking about the Trail of Tears. We're going to take a hard look at how the war came to their doorstep and why they made the choices they did, including the choice to side with the Union or Confederacy. We will see the hungry beast that is war scatter them like leaves. We will see how this conflict reverberates into the present day, and at the end I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic, tragic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, shop on Audible, go on a nature walk, do the thing you need to do. So daub your fingers in the war paint and wrap your feet. You're liable to get frostbite if you don't find some moccasins. It's time to pick a side and hope you made the right choice. Because ready or not, we're going on campaign. 
Our story will begin today with the Trail of Tears. And not just because it's a horrifying tragedy that still needs retelling, but because the people who went on the Trail of Tears are our protagonists. They made choices, and the divisions these choices created would resurface in the Civil War. The trail would lead them to Indian Territory, modern Oklahoma, where they would be caught between blue and gray. White Americans called them the Five Civilized Tribes. Civilized is a loaded word, so I will call them the Five Nations. They were, ahem, the Chickasaw and Choctaw in Mississippi. The Muscogee, also known as the Creek, they're often called the Creek, but they were the Muscogee in Alabama. The Seminole in Florida, and largest of all, the Cherokee along the Blue Ridge in northern Georgia and the Carolinas. Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, Muscogee, Seminole, the Five Nations, aka the Five Civilized Tribes. They were called civilized for a reason. By the 1820s, unlike the so-called wild Indians like the Apache or Comanche or the Sioux, the Five Nations had absorbed many of the white man's ways. They lived in wooden houses, farmed their fields, dressed in a mixture of native clothing and European-style suits and dresses. They had mills and mines and towns, and many of them went to Christian churches. Each tribe had adopted an American-style constitution and legal system. The Cherokee, for instance, had an executive, legislative, and judicial branch that mirrored the United States. The only difference was that their executive was the principal chief, who in the 1820s was Kuwis Gui, who usually went by his Christian name, John Ross. John Ross, like many of the elites within the Five Nations, was a what they called a mixed blood, the product of intermarriage with the whites. It's not a cool word to use these days, probably, but that's what they called them at the time, the mixed bloods. Which is why, also, yeah, the Cherokee chief was named John Ross. We're going to run into a lot of that and just get used to it. The Cherokee had gone one step farther into so-called civilized status by creating a written language. The Cherokee syllabary was developed single-handedly by Sequoia, one of the most brilliant people in American history. By the late 1820s, the Cherokee had a newspaper, the Cherokee Phoenix, printed in both English and the Cherokee syllabary. But the Five Nations also practiced another um, civilized tradition, slavery. Now, like I've said before, any pre-modern society usually had slavery in some form. But by the 1820s, the Five Nations practiced slavery in its American form, the plantation-based ownership of black people. The chiefs and other rich Indians owned plantations as impressive as anything their white neighbors had. This might seem weird as heck, right? The Indians owned slaves? Oh yeah, guys, this story is going to get complicated fast. The Seminole, unlike the other four nations, held a dimmer view of slavery. The Seminole were closely related to the Muscogee, but throughout their history they'd absorbed many runaway slaves from neighboring Georgia and Alabama. These refugees became fully-fledged members of the tribe, creating a mixed Afro-Indian Seminole community that scared many of their cousins. So the Seminole were one of the most anti-slavery Indian tribes, which was relevant when the Civil War came and they had to choose a side. And there were divisions within each nation as well. The majority of the Five Nations, the Full Bloods, tended to retain more of the old traditions and beliefs. But the Five Nations' upper classes tended to be made up of mixed bloods, who really bought into the whole civilized thing a lot more. These factions would clash whenever they had to choose between preserving their tribal identity and adapting to new ways. But one tradition remained constant. 
the five nations held land collectively, in common, not as individual pieces of property to be bought and sold like the whites. White Americans hated this policy, seeing it as uncivilized, mainly because it kept them from buying all the Indians' land. They believed that they could make better use of that land. But still, from the outside looking in, the society of the five nations looked a lot like the rest of the antebellum South. They adopted white ways, dressed in white man's clothes, practiced slavery in the white man's fashion, and prayed to the white man's God. But they weren't white, and that was all that mattered. Starting in the 1820s, American state and federal governments began to press the five nations to give up their territory. White settlers craved their lands, lands that were supposedly guaranteed by treaty and law, for their own use. They saw the Indian idea of common land ownership as backwards and inefficient, and demanded that the five nations agree to removal, their term for deportation west of the Mississippi. And this led to massive debate within the tribes over how to respond. Should they comply, or should they resist? And I'm not telling you this for my health. Removal created the fractures that would split the nations apart when the Civil War came. Guys, this was a hard choice, because both options were bad. There were some Indians, often the mixed bloods, who favored giving up the land and moving west. They would lose the land anyway, no matter what they did, and a good deal now was better than a bad deal later. But the less wealthy, more traditionalist full-bloods generally favored resistance. After all, this was their land, their father's land, guaranteed by law and bound by treaty. The white men had no right. The mixed-bloods might say, yeah, they don't have any right, but that's not going to stop them. We have to acknowledge reality. The full-bloods might call the mixed-bloods traitors to their people and their ancestors. How dare you not fight? They both had decent points. But the dispute over removal was not just handled with words. It was also handled with blood. A common tactic that white people used to cheat Indians out of their land throughout American history was to convince a couple of them to agree to a treaty, then try to impose that treaty that only a few Indians signed on the rest of the tribe. Well, the Alabama Muscogee were having none of that nonsense. They passed a law that any Muscogee trying to sell tribal lands was sentenced to death. But lo and behold, someone had to go and try it. In 1825, William McIntosh, mixed-blood principal chief of the Lower Muscogee Towns, signed a treaty with the government exchanging his lands for new territories out west. The Muscogee National Council lost its mind, especially the speaker, a guy named Apothle Yahola, big character in this, in this episode. Apothle Yahola was a strong, powerful leader, an excellent orator and charismatic Indian chief who had fought against Andrew Jackson during the War of 1812. Setting aside that he was a major slave owner himself and a Baptist, Apothle Yahola and his upper Muscogee faction favored a hard line against removal. When he heard what William McIntosh and the lower Muscogee had done, he sent a hundred Muscogee warriors to carry out the law. On April 30th, 1825, the warriors set McIntosh's house on fire and killed him as he tried to escape. McIntosh's two sons, Chili and Daniel McIntosh, escaped. The McIntosh faction left Alabama to settle near modern-day Muscogee, Oklahoma, but they never forgot, especially not Chili and Daniel, what they had suffered at the hands of Apothle Yahola's faction. The time for vengeance would come. The Cherokee were also under pressure, especially in 1829, when gold was discovered on their lands. 
Finding gold on your land is good, unless you're an American Indian tribe in the 19th century, in which case it's a ticking time bomb. White settlers flooded into the Cherokee lands, and the Georgia state government refused to stop them. The federal government refused to stop them, saying, well, it's inevitable, you just gotta agree to removal. So the Cherokee appealed to the American legal system. In Worcester versus Georgia, 1832, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with the Cherokee, with Chief Justice John Marshall ruling that the Cherokee were sovereign and Georgia state laws could not be enforced on their land. But U.S. President Andrew Jackson famously said, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Basically, Andrew Jackson defied the Supreme Court and refused to enforce their legal order. When it came to the Indians, the white man's need for land mattered more than justice, law, or morality. The Indians had to go. Just like the Muscogee, the Cherokee split. Principal Chief John Ross and the majority of the Cherokee opted to resist and hoped that justice would prevail through the courts. But another faction, the Treaty Party, challenged Ross's leadership. Men like Major Ridge, his son John Ridge, and the brothers Elias Boudinot and Stand Weighty were part of this faction. Stand Weighty, if you recognize that name, yeah, yeah, Stand Weighty. They wanted to take whatever deal the federal government would give them before they were forced off the land at the point of the bayonet. In 1835, the Treaty Party went behind John Ross's back to sign the Treaty of New Etchetah, giving up the Cherokee homelands in exchange for new lands to the west. What the Muscogee had feared came to pass for the Cherokee. A minority faction signed away the rights of the whole tribe. The treaty party took their people west, and even though the other Cherokee refused to comply, it was too late. John Ross came home one night from arguing his case in Georgia to find a white man living in his house. The U.S. Army came in to round up the Cherokee and deport them to the west. The Cherokee would name their particular march the Trail Where They Cried, also known as the Trail of Tears. But this term has come to stand for the removals of all five civilized tribes. The Choctaw and the Chickasaw, having barely avoided intertribal violence, were removed in 1831 and 1837. Most of the Seminoles in 1832, the Muscogee in 1836. The Cherokee were the last holdouts, but in 1838 they too were force-marched through the winter to their new reservations in Indian Territory. And this was literally a death march. Listen to what Sally Farney of the Muscogee Nation said of their deportation in 1836. Many people fell by the wayside, too faint with hunger or too weak to keep up with the rest. The aged, feeble, and sick were left to perish by the wayside. A crude bed was quickly prepared for these sick and weary people. Only a bowl of water was left within reach. Thus, they were left to suffer and die alone. The little children cried day after day from weariness, hunger, and illness. Death stalked at all hours, but there was no time for proper burying or ceremonies. My grandfather died on this trip. A hastily cut piece of cotton wood contained his body. There were several men carrying reeds with eagle feathers attached to the end. These men continually circled around the wagon trains or during the night around the camps. Their purpose was to encourage the Indians to not be too heavy-hearted nor think of the homes that had been left. 
the five nations lost a quarter of their number in the deportations, including almost all their elders and young children. One soldier escorting the Cherokee later remembered. I fought through the Civil War and have seen men shot to pieces and slaughtered by thousands, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever knew. The Trail of Tears is one of the eternal stains on American history, one that no amount of whitewashing or scrubbing will ever erase. But for this story, for this story today, the Trail of Tears was only the beginning, because the divisions within the tribes followed them to their new territory. Cherokee Principal Chief John Ross arrived in Indian Territory in 1838, having buried his wife in a shallow grave on the Trail of Tears. He immediately asserted his authority again over all the Cherokee. The Ridge family, Elias Boudinot and Stan Wadey, the Treaty Party, had signed the treaty that gave away the Cherokee Nation, and their enemies had not forgotten what they saw as betrayal. On June 22, 1839, several assassins killed Major Ridge and his son John and shot Elias Boudinot dead outside his house. Only Stand Wadey escaped his killers, the last surviving leader of the treaty party. The assassins were never identified, though they were almost certainly members of John Ross's faction. The Cherokee tried to paper over the dispute, pretend they were all friends again, but it was hard to forget that bloodshed. John Ross and Stand Wadey remained fierce enemies behind closed doors, one blaming the other for the death of his brother, one blaming the other for the loss of their lands. All it would take to split the Cherokee again was a spark. A spark like, say, a civil war. Only a few of the five nations managed to resist removal. A fragment of the Cherokee, around 800 to 1,000, held out in western North Carolina, where they still survive today as the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Much more troublesome was a large Seminole band led by Chief Osceola and Holata Miko, aka Billy Bowlegs, who had taken refuge in the Florida Everglades. They fought the U.S. Army in the Seminole War of 1835 to 1842, a war which might, you know, net its own episode someday, we'll see. The Seminole were gradually captured and deported, although a fragment survived and again still live in Florida today. But the Seminole were not happy to learn that they were supposed to share a land with the Muscogee, their hostile pro-slavery cousins. And this caused more disputes until the federal government finally gave the two nations separate territories. The five nations now occupied Indian Territory. The Chickasaw and Choctaw in the south, bordering Texas. The Muscogee and Seminole in the middle, around modern-day Oklahoma City. And the Cherokee in the north and east. They shared this space with other smaller tribes that had been deported from other parts of the United States. In the removal treaties, the U.S. government promised the five nations that they would be protected from outsiders, that they would retain their autonomy and individual governments, and the land would be theirs forever and never become part of any state. Gosh, you think the U.S. government will keep its promises this time? Well, what was Indian Territory is now Oklahoma, so yeah, you do the math. Never become part of any state. Yep, sounds like that worked out. At the end of the Trail of Tears, the five nations had found a new homeland. It wasn't like the lands they left behind. It wasn't as good. A lot of it was rough hills, open prairie, hard rock and soil. Many Indians were convinced they would never see home again, and just died of despair, just lost hope. But most of them choked down their tears, prayed for lost loved ones along the trail, and got to work. They had to survive somehow. Women like Elsie Roebuck, who buried her husband on the trail, digging a 
bare scratch grave with a board alongside her sons, pulled the plow with her sons to till the hard land. The Muscogee rebuilt their ceremonial villages. The Choctaw and Chickasaw bought and raised cattle herds. The Cherokee Constitution was reestablished, and Cherokee-language newspapers were printed once more. The Five Nations had survived. It wasn't easy. They had very new, very unfriendly neighbors, the Plains Indians to the west, which they called Wild Indians. These were the uncivilized, I guess you could say, the uncivilized tribes. Cheyenne, Arapaho, Kiowa, Apache, and especially the Comanche, basically the last people you would ever want as a neighbor. The Comanche were the Indians other Indians were scared of. There wasn't a lot of Native American solidarity going on here. Cattle theft, hostage taking, and outright looting and burning were tried and true Comanche traditions and they weren't picky about their victims. So this required federal troops to be stationed throughout Indian territory to protect the Five Nations as per the treaty. This didn't always work and the Five Nations usually had to protect themselves. Despite the trail, despite the wild Indians, despite bitter years and heavy snows and poor harvests, the Five Nations didn't just survive, they eventually prospered. Many Indians would remember these as the golden years, and small settlements and even a few towns emerged. The largest was the Cherokee capital of Tahlequah in the northeast, but there was also Cabin Creek, North Fork Town, Honey Springs, and Perryville, respectable little American towns. The Five Nations also built a school system that was honestly better than anything else in the United States at the time, taught by Christian missionaries welcomed in by the Indians. There were even Christian colleges that astonishingly taught both boys and girls. The Five Nations had rebuilt a burgeoning so-called civilization in their new homeland. And of course, that other aspect of Ahum civilization had followed them. Many Indians had brought their black slaves along on the Trail of Tears, and they suffered as much, if not worse, than their masters. The new Indian territory was a slave state in all but name, with many Indians owning one or two, but some owning hundreds of slaves. Some sources, some sources, have the Five Nations treating their enslaved people better than other white Southerners. Heh, <laughs> okay, nice slavery. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical. For instance... Charlotte Johnson White, interviewed by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s, was a young enslaved girl in Indian Territory. She remembered a particularly cruel Cherokee master. Her mother was too weak to work well due to illnesses contracted on the Trail of Tears, and when one day she was just too slow, the master whipped her to death, which you could do. I guess the whippings helped kill her, but she better off dead than just living for the whip. Later, the same master pushed Charlotte into a brush fire when he lost his temper again. Charlotte pointed to the scars on her face to indicate what happened to her when she was 12 years old. That's what I got from the fire, and my back is scarred with the lashings that'll be with me when I meet my Jesus. Yeah, if this was nice slavery, I don't know if I want to see mean slavery. And slavery in the 1850s was becoming a capital I issue. 20 years after the Trail of Tears, the issue would become a gathering storm across the United States. And the Five Nations were not ignorant of these developments. They watched the storm grow with horror, knowing that they would end up in the middle of it, whatever happened. It was really hard to ignore the warning signs. Violence had already erupted in the North. When the federal government declared that Kansas Territory would get to vote on whether it would be a free state or a slave state, 
pro- and anti-slavery factions flooded the territory and started killing each other. Bleeding Kansas was right on the Five Nations' doorstep. But the disputes over slavery didn't stop there. Within the Five Nations, Christian missionaries had brought a new message into the Cherokee and Muscogee lands, the idea of abolitionism. On the eve of the Civil War, many people in the Five Nations openly opposed slavery. They were abolitionists, most notably the majority of the full-blood poorer Cherokee. The Cherokee mixed-bloods were the richest and most powerful in, in the nation, and they were the main slave owners, and they were very, very unhappy with the rising tide of abolitionism. The old divisions reopened. Stan Wadey emerged as the leader of the pro-slavery Cherokee. He and his followers even joined the Knights of the Golden Circle, the pro-slavery secret society that had sponsored the filibuster movement. The anti-slavery Cherokee formed the Kitowa Society, which claimed to represent the old traditions against the aristocratic slave-owning mixed-bloods. The Kitowa Society wore a secret symbol, almost like a gang symbol, a pair of crossed pins that identified the members of the society to each other. This led to them being called Pin Indians, the Pins. Pin Indians are going to be mentioned a lot in this episode. They're the anti-slavery Cherokee. Principal Chief John Ross tried to negotiate between the factions, but this grew harder as the tension increased. The Cherokee were not the only ones facing division. The Muscogee, the Seminole, even the mostly pro-slavery Choctaw and Chickasaw, all faced internal conflicts as they stared at the coming storm. Annie Grayson of the Muscogee Nation remembered that time. The very atmosphere seemed charged with excitement and rumors of war, rendering the wisest heads unsteady and at a loss to know what course best to pursue. The Indian Territory was supposed to be safe, the place where the five nations could live free of the white man's problems. But geography sealed their fate. To the south and east lay Texas and Arkansas, soon to be part of the Confederacy, and to the north lay Kansas and Missouri, destined to remain in the Union. The Indian nations that had survived the Trail of Tears were about to be trapped in no man's land, trapped between the blue and the gray. They might not want war, but that didn't matter. New catchphrase for this episode. You might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. The first shots fired at Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, would not only divide the United States, they would tear the five nations apart. In 1861, a strange man entered the Indian Territory. Albert Pike was 51 years old, huge for his time at 300 pounds, with long, luxurious hair and a massive beard. Pike was an Arkansas legend, eccentric and multi-talented, kind of a weirdo, but this weirdo happened to have long contacts with the Five Nations and spoke many of their languages. So only a few weeks after the Civil War began, the Confederate government sent Albert Pike West with a mission to ally with the tribes of the Indian Territory. This was one of the turning points in the history of the Five Nations, 
Albert Pike's arrival in Indian territory would be like the apple of discord from Greek mythology, an event that forced them to make a choice. The Civil War was here, it was time to pick a side, and neutrality was not on the menu. So let's take a quick look at the factors that would influence this decision. Why might, for instance, the Five Nations side with the North? Lots of reasons. Joining the Confederacy would violate their treaties, which protected them from both white settlement and uh, the wild, so-called wild Indians. The U.S. government funded their schools. Anti-slavery Indians were strongly opposed to the Confederacy for obvious reasons. And for the Cherokee and the Seminole, they were probably a majority. As weird as it might seem, the traditionalist full-bloods, the ones who had opposed removal, tended to lean pro-Union. And finally, U.S. Army garrisons protected the Indian Territory from wild Indians. But after Fort Sumter, these troops were sent north to help out in the war effort. This move left the five nations abandoned at the mercy of the Confederacy. A smart military move, but a bad political move. Some Indians believed that this meant the treaties were broken, the deal was off, and they were on their own. So why, for instance, would the five nations side with the South? Lots of reasons. The Five Nations had cultural, economic, and even family ties to the South. They had intermarried with them during their time in the Southern states, and did their best to imitate Southern ways. The Indian Territory was just much more associated with the South than with the North. The elites of all Five Nations tended to be slaveholders, and they saw the war as an attack on their property. The slave-owning mixed-blood elites saw that Union victory might mean the end of their privilege and wealth. Finally. Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party included several politicians who called for the treaties to be canceled in Indian territory open to white settlement. This sounded like deja vu all over again, the Trail of Tears redux, so lots of Indians did not trust the Union farther than they could throw them, which, given later events, was fair. So with all that, guys, you get it. The Five Nations had lots of good reasons for choosing each side. It was a hard choice, and one I am glad I didn't have to make. And in the end, all five nations would side with the Confederacy, at least at first, because many of their people disagreed, and disagreed violently. The Civil War would tear the tribes apart, and the splits would occur along the same lines as the old wounds from the era of removal. The American Civil War didn't create new divisions within the tribes, it intersected with pre-existing divisions. Each of the five nations would fight its own internal civil war. Albert Pike crisscrossed Indian territory throughout the summer of 1861, handing out gifts and making promises and forging alliances like a traveling salesman but he was selling war. The Chickasaw and Choctaw were easy to persuade, they had always been the most pro-Southern, and Pike had an ally to help him there. This was Douglas H. Cooper, who had been the U.S. Indian agent in charge of the Chickasaw and Choctaw before the war. Cooper was pro-Southern, pro-Confederate, and his assistance earned him a colonel's commission in the Confederate Army. But Pike ran into trouble with the other three tribes. The Muscogee were sharply divided along the same factional lines that had caused violence back during removal. The mixed-blood slaveholding elite, including brothers Chile and Daniel McIntosh, were firmly pro-Confederate. But the poorer pro-Union masses gathered under Apothle Yahola, the grand old man, 83 years old but still wielding enormous influence. 
Chili and Daniel McIntosh hated the old man, remembering that he had had their father assassinated 36 years ago. The Muscogee National Council of July 1861 boiled over with anger, bitterness, tension, and buried hatred. Apothle Yahola spoke eloquently about the need to honor their treaties, how it was the only way to preserve their people in the long run, but ultimately the council voted to ally with the Confederacy. The grand old man returned to his plantation, but about half the Muscogee went with him. Soon all the pro-Union Indians would begin to gather under his banner. This was going to be a problem. The Seminoles also split down the middle. Half of them followed Hinika Miko, a.k.a. John Jumper, into Pike's alliance with the Confederacy, while the other half, under Billy Bowlegs, the pro-Union Seminoles, traveled west to join Apothleahola. Pike also tried to win over the smaller tribes in Indian Territory. Some joined the Confederate cause, some joined the Union. The only holdouts were the Cherokee. Principal Chief John Ross faced a horrible dilemma. He wanted to keep the Cherokee neutral, out of the white man's war, like this isn't our fight. But neutrality was not on the menu. His rival, Stand Weighty, and the rest of his faction had spoken to Albert Pike already, saying that whatever John Ross decided, they were going to side with the Confederacy. The anti-slavery Penn Indians were frothing at the mouth to go after Weighty and his faction. There had already been several violent incidents that threatened to flare into something bigger. Ross was staring at the possibility of a Cherokee Civil War inside the larger American Civil War. You can forget neutrality. You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. So John Ross made the hard decision, despite his pro-Union leanings, to avoid internal conflict within the Cherokee. He signed the treaty with the Confederacy. All five nations had signed on to the Civil War on the side of the South. They had made their choices, and there would be no going back. Albert Pike's treaty stipulated that the five nations would remain sovereign, that their lands would be protected, and that they would raise military units for the South, but that these units would not be required to fight outside Indian territory. So that's how you get Confederate units called, for instance, the 1st Chickasaw and Choctaw Mounted Rifles, the 1st Seminole Battalion, and Colonel Daniel McIntosh's 1st Creek Mounted Rifles. Remember, the Muscogee were also called the Creek. But in the Cherokee Nation, things were more complicated. John Ross commissioned the 1st Cherokee Mounted Rifles, which consisted mostly of anti-slavery full-bloods, including Penn Indians. You know, the least enthusiastic Confederates in the world. John Ross was trying to keep his rival, Stan Wadey, from gaining too much influence. Stan Wadey's like, well, I'll raise my own regiment, and he raised the second Cherokee Mounted Rifles. And before the end of the year, some of these guys would be shooting at each other. Indian would be killing Indian very, very soon. Confederate allied leadership of the five nations had been challenged by the grand old man. Ever since he had left the Muscogee Council, Apothle Yahola had become the rallying point for the anti-Confederate factions in all the tribes, not just the Muscogee. They were gathering at his plantation in the western fringes of Muscogee territory, bringing wagons loaded with their families and supplies, forming a large camp of pro-Union Indians that defied the Confederate treaties. And they weren't the only ones on the move. All over Indian territory, people were starting to pack up and run. There was a ripple of fear, just cold, icy fear, especially among the older folks who remembered the Trail of Tears. Just 
This feeling that something really, really bad was about to happen, that they were in the path of a hurricane and they needed to get out while the getting was good. Streams of refugees flowed in every direction, north, east, south, and these included runaway slaves. In the middle of all this chaos for a lot of slaves, it was now or never. If you're ever going to make a break for it, this is the moment. And Apothle Yahola had made a proclamation that he would accept any slaves who wanted their freedom within his camp. Phoebe Banks, a young enslaved girl, was five years old when her father made one of those hard choices that everyone in the Indian Territory was making. He stole his master's horses and fled with his family to Apothle Yahola's camp. Phoebe remembered. That's the ones my daddy and uncle was fixing to join, for they was afraid their masters would take up and move to Texas before they could get away. All our family joined up with him when they made a break for the north. The ancient Muscogee chief now led a large moving encampment that included roughly half the Muscogee, half the Seminole, and significant numbers from other tribes, in addition to several hundred escaping slaves and free black people who knew which side, you know, where they were going to be the safest. The Confederates could not ignore the threat the grand old man posed, both to their alliances and to the slavery system. They would come after him sooner or later, and he knew it. So Apothle Ahola sent a letter to Abraham Lincoln, begging for help from the Union to fight the Confederates. He wrote, You said that in our new homes we should be defended, and that no white people should ever molest us, but the land should be ours as long as grass grew or waters run. But now the wolf has come. Men who are strangers tread our soil. Our children are frightened and the mothers cannot sleep for fear. That phrase, now the wolf has come, I found this phrase in other Indian accounts of the Civil War. It seems to have been a pretty common metaphor for a crisis or an impending catastrophe. The wolf has come. War is on our doorstep. Mr. Lincoln, we want to stay loyal. We want to side with the Union, but we need help but help could not get to them in time. As winter approached, Apothle Ahola decided that his faction had to make a break for it to escape to Union lines in Kansas. In early November 1861, the column headed north. 9,000 people had joined Apothle Ahola, but only 2,000 of them were men of fighting age. The rest were women, children, and the elderly. And the Confederates would soon be hot on their heels. The tragedy that was about to unfold in the frozen, snow-covered plains of Oklahoma would be remembered as the Trail of Blood on Ice. Colonel Douglas H. Cooper, the former agent to the Chickasaw and Choctaw Nation, had assumed command of Confederate forces in Indian Territory. This included both the new Indian regiments and some units from Texas and Arkansas. Cooper and Pike, along with the pro-Confederate tribal leaders, saw Apothle Ahola as a threat to Confederate control of the territory. Cooper sent several messages to the grand old man, trying to meet with him and avoid violence, but the loyal Indians ignored these messages and just kept moving north towards Kansas. Cooper decided that they had to be dealt with. Apothle Ahola's loyalist Indians would have to surrender or be destroyed. So on November 15, 1861, Cooper set out with 1,400 men, including the Indian regiments and the white soldiers of the 9th Texas Cavalry. 
They moved fast over the cold, dry plains, on a collision course with Apotheahola's mostly civilian column. It wasn't hard to track the Loyalist Indians. Their heavily laden carts and thousands of moccasin-covered feet made a trail that was pretty easy to follow in the dry prairie grass. On November 19th, the Confederates caught their quarry. They had camped near a site called Round Mountain, west of modern-day Tulsa. Cooper sent his regiments into the attack just before darkness. Thus began the Battle of Round Mountain, the first battle of the Civil War in the Indian Territory. It wasn't much of a battle. The white troopers of the 9th Texas came riding into the enemy campsite, only to find it abandoned. Then suddenly, from the tree line, a hail of gunfire poured into them. Apothleahola was like 83 years old and not exactly able to pass a physical, so he left the conduct of the battle to his Seminole allies, including Billy Bowlegs. The Seminoles and Muscogees lured the Texans into an ambush, taking pot shots from the tree line with their muskets. Then they lit the prairie on fire to cover their position, so the dry prairie grass is on fire, there's smoke billowing across this campsite. Cooper's Confederates formed themselves into a square, shooting blindly into the smoke and fire and darkness, barely even seeing a target. They held their position in the darkness, only for dawn to reveal that the Loyalist Indians had withdrawn. The Battle of Round Mountain wasn't big. It only cost the Confederates a few killed or wounded, though Cooper claimed that he killed like 500 of Apotheahola's Indians. This probably, this was far exaggerated. Apotheahola's band had gotten away, but they were forced to abandon many horses and food supplies. Their women had taken their anger and fear out on the Confederate prisoners, who had been scalped or mutilated before being murdered. The white Confederates watched as several of their Muscogee allies began scalping the enemy dead. Yeah, this is going to get nasty and it's going to stay nasty. After Round Mountain, Cooper fell back in order to gather reinforcements and supplies. But Apotheahola's followers were not out of the woods yet. With its heavy carts and livestock, its women and small children and old people, the column crept through the prairie at a snail's pace. The loyal Indians struggled through bitter cold, punctuated by sleet, to make their way north to Kansas, 300 miles away. By December, Apotheahola's column had reached Cherokee territory, and many of the pro-Union locals had joined his encampment. So now we have basically, eventually, all members of all five nations have gathered under Apotheahola's banner, in varying numbers. And I can't emphasize this enough. There were all these choices going on, hard decisions that each family and household and community had to make. Do we join Apotheahola? Do we run off somewhere else, north, east, or south? Do we join the Confederacy? Do we hunker down and hope they all ignore us? Lots of people tried to choose that last one, just maybe this will all blow over. But neutrality wasn't on the menu. With thousands of armed men roaming the countryside, being on your own was dangerous. You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. When Cooper moved out for a second bite at Apotheahola's column, he was reinforced by the first Cherokee mounted rifles. You know, the full-blood anti-slavery Penn Indians who were the least enthusiastic soldiers in the Confederate Army. But Cooper needed numbers, and they were numbers. His 1,300 horsemen thundered north for a rematch with the Grand Old Man. Apotheahola decided to hold them off at a new position called Chustotalasaw, just north of modern Tulsa. The Indians fortified a horseshoe river bend with log and timber barricades, hunkered down behind this cover and waited for the attack. Cooper arrived on December 8, 1861. 
Apotheahola sent a message to Cooper saying, he was prepared to make peace, just let us go. We're not going to hurt you. But when the Confederates saw the Muscogees and Seminoles putting on war paint, they decided the peace offer was a trick. They prepared to attack. But that night, something happened. The Cherokees of the First Mounted Rifles started talking to some of the old man's Muscogee warriors. Many of them suddenly realized that they had much more in common with the refugees than with the Confederate army they were part of. Like I've pointed out, most of the first Cherokees rank and file were full-blood anti-slavery Cherokees. They didn't want to fight the Muscogee, and they definitely didn't want to fight for the Confederacy that, all that much. The first Cherokee mounted rifles decided this wasn't a battle worth fighting. So most of them left. Most of them deserted, just turning around and leaving. But 150 Cherokee fighters crossed the lines and joined Apotheahola. Only 35 of the Cherokee remained with the Confederate Army. Guys, this is incredible. This was, to my knowledge, the only time that anything like this happened in the American Civil War, where a large number of soldiers switched sides on the eve of battle. And it could only happen here, where the loyalties were so blurred, where the five nations were caught between blue and gray. The Battle of Chustatalasaw, December 9th, 1861, was the second battle of the Trail of Blood on Ice. It was a chaotic mess that looked nothing like the battles out east. There were no line formations, no big banners waving, not even uniforms. Small groups of combatants in frontier dress and fringed leggings flowed back and forth across ravines and forests and prairies. Men scrambled from boulder to boulder taking pot shots or came to melee range with tomahawks. Some of Apotheahola's men were using bows and arrows, and some of the Confederate Indians were using bows and arrows. This was the Civil War, yes, but fought according to the rules of Western frontier warfare, both in the Texan and the Indian style. And the smaller Indian Civil Wars came to life at Chustatalasaw. John Jumper's Confederate Seminoles were firing at Billy Bowleg's Union Seminoles. Daniel McIntosh led his first Creek-mounted rifles against his fellow Muscogee, burning with hatred for that old man who had, his, who had had his father assassinated. But the Loyalist Indians were buying time for the refugee column behind them, their non-combatants, women, children, and elderly, to make a break for it. The warriors only fell back from their Chustotalasaw position when they got confirmation that the civilians had escaped. The Confederates claimed the battlefield, but the old man had escaped their clutches yet again. Cooper claimed victory at Chustotalasaw, but he was furious at the Confederate desertion, which, yeah, like 150 of your soldiers go over to the other side. That's going to miff you a little bit. John Ross, though, forgave the Cherokee who had left the battlefield and refused to punish them like Cooper and Standwaity wanted, contributing to rumors, probably true, that he was secretly pro-Union. Either way, Cooper set out again, one last time, with more troops, now including reinforcements from Texas and Arkansas, and Stan Wadey's Cherokee Regiment. If Apotheahola remained at large, he might he stood a chance of breaking the Confederate hole in the territory. It was time to run the old man down and crush him before he could escape. It was almost the end of December. Apotheahola's freezing, starving column staggered north. Fresh snowfall blanketed and transformed the Oklahoma prairie. It was bitterly, horribly cold, and they made slow progress through the blizzards and the sleet. 
Women clutched their babies to their breasts. Old folks shivered on the wagons, and escaping slave families clustered around pathetic fires each night. When they camped near the place the Cherokees called a Chustanla, in modern-day Osage County, Oklahoma, they thought they had gotten away. They were wrong. On the morning of December 26, 1861, the day after Christmas, the first Christmas of the Civil War, the Confederates arrived at Achustenla. They were Cooper's recently arrived reinforcements, Arkansas and Texas troops under Colonel James McIntosh. No relation to the Muskogee McIntosh at all, like not, not the same family. At noon, McIntosh gave the order for a dismounted frontal assault. The Confederates of the 3rd, 6th, and 11th Texas Cavalry gave a wild yell and charged across the prairie at Apotheahola's lines. They splashed across a freezing creek and ran up the slope, their breath rising like gun smoke in the freezing air. They crashed into the Indian lines and after heavy fighting, often hand-to-hand, drove them back. The Indian fighters fled towards the civilian campsite, yelling, Get out! Run! Run! The civilians, the men, the the women, the children, the elderly, ran into the freezing wilderness, grabbing whatever they could and making a break for it, as their men bought them time to escape. Muskogee legend said that 25 of their warriors made a last stand, surrounded, shooting and hacking and using their rifles as clubs, only one escaping to tell the tale. Behind them, the panic-stricken refugees fled in all directions, disappearing into the cold darkness. The Battle of Achustanla was over, but the suffering had only begun. The men, women, and children of Apotheahola's faction now had to fight for survival. They were pursued by Standwaity's Cherokees and the other Confederate Indians, who captured some, but killed many. The Texans had barely touched the Indian civilians. They broke through the lines, they captured the camp, oh, job well done. The pursuit was carried out by their fellow Indians, the fellow members of the Five Nations running them down. Men, women, and children all died by the rifle, the pistol, the tomahawk. But most escaped. Heading north through the howling wind and pelting sleet, little parties of refugees clustered together, finding their way by the stars, moaning under the lashes of the Oklahoma winter. Many refugees were barefoot, and their ruined feet left red stains on the shining ice. Guys, every story from this journey is just one of the worst things you've ever heard. Starving women hid while the Confederate Indians passed, then crawled out to pick kernels of corn out of the horse dung to eat. Some women are said to have killed their babies rather than see them freeze to death. All along the road to Kansas, huddled corpses littered the trail of blood on ice. One young refugee, about 10 years old at the time, remembered seeing something that stuck with him to the end of his days. One time, we saw a little baby sitting on its little blanket in the rocks. Everyone was running, but no one had the time to stop and pick up the child. As it saw the people running by, the little child began to wave its little hands. The child had no knowledge that he had been deserted. Yeah, that's something you don't forget seeing. The slaves, the escaping slaves who had joined Apotheahola, the ones trying to escape to freedom, may have been the most desperate of all, because they knew exactly what waited for them if they were recaptured. Phoebe Banks, the five-year-old enslaved girl, remembered her family's escape. 
dead all over the hills when we get away. Some of the Negroes shot and wounded so bad the blood run down the saddle skirts, and some fall off their horses miles from the battleground and lay still on the ground. Daddy and Uncle Jacob keep our family together somehow and head across the line into Kansas. Around 7,000 of Apotheahola's followers, including the old man himself, did eventually make it to Kansas, a surprising number. But more than 2,000, as many as 3,000, had perished in the trail of blood on ice, including the grand old man's beloved daughter. The survivors staggered into Kansas, where the Union authorities were overwhelmed, completely unprepared, to care for the freezing, starving refugees. Many would die from disease or exposure as 1861 turned into 1862. The Civil War continued. The refugees huddled in their camps, freezing, starving, dying, waiting for it to be over. They would be waiting for a very long time. The Trail of Blood on Ice was over. The Confederacy had scattered Apotheahola's camp at Achustenla, but they had failed to wipe him or his faction out. Muskogee had killed Muskogee, Seminole had killed Seminole, Cherokee had killed Cherokee. The loyal Indians would remember their suffering, their trauma, the deaths. When they came back, and they would come back, they would answer blood for blood. The Civil War had barely begun. The big battles of the Civil War that are so famous hadn't even happened yet. But the five nations had already been torn asunder. The trail of blood on ice lay littered with bodies, many of them who had survived the trail of tears only to meet their end in this broken land that was supposed to be their new home. And this was only the beginning. Three and a half more years of pain awaited the five nations. It didn't matter whether they had been interested in the Civil War at all. The Civil War was definitely interested in them. Apotheahola had spoken for all of them, and he had spoken true. Now, undeniably, the wolf had come. is a beast. War is hungry. War doesn't care what it devours. And you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. As 1862 dawned on Indian territory, the five nations had been sundered. Many pro-Union Indians had fled north to refugee camps in Kansas or Missouri. A steady trickle continued to flow into these camps as the pro-Confederate Indian governments cracked down on suspected Union sympathizers. But the Civil War was going on outside Indian Territory too, and the Confederate Indian regiments were being drawn into the struggle. In March 1862, newly commissioned Brigadier General Albert Pike led a strange-looking brigade into Arkansas. It included some of the Texas and Arkansas regiments that had fought in the Trail of Blood on Ice, but most of its strength were the 1st and 2nd Cherokee Mounted Rifles. Their gear was strange compared to their Confederate brethren, slouch hats or turbans with long eagle feathers inserted, buckskin leggings, fringe jackets, and an assortment of pistols, shotguns, rifles, bows and arrows, tomahawks, and war clubs. General Pike wasn't happy that they were in Arkansas. 
he had promised the Five Nations that their units wouldn't have to serve outside the territory. But the Confederacy had been pushed out of Missouri in 1861, and General Earl Van Dorn needed reinforcements to resist General Samuel R. Curtis's Union advance into Arkansas. They would confront Curtis's army at Pea Ridge, close to modern-day Fayetteville, Arkansas. The tactical details of the Battle of Pea Ridge, which is actually a pretty decently sized battle, are not super important for this story. This is a story about the Five Nations. I'm keeping my scope narrow here, so we're only going to focus on the part of the battle where the Indians took part. But the Cherokee regiments would end up playing a controversial role in this major battle. On March 7th, 1862, General Pike and his Cherokee regiments marched towards the sound of firing at Pea Ridge. The local Confederate commanders, Generals Ben McCulloch and James McIntosh, hadn't given Pike any sort of directions about what he was supposed to do. They were like, oh, you're here. Ew. And they just didn't tell him what was going on. Pike had his men form up in battle line along a rail fence in the Arkansas woods. The two Cherokee regiments, both the Penn Indians and Stan Wadey's men, representing two halves of their internally divided tribe, faced a Union battery across an open field. 300 yards away. When General McCulloch ordered the Confederate line forward, the Cherokees let out war whoops, then rushed forward in a wild charge. Colonel John Drew's 1st Cherokee led the way on horseback, followed by the dismounted men of Stand Wadey's 2nd Regiment. The Union troops defending the battery panicked, terrified of the Indian war cries and the scene of these painted warriors blazing towards them. There was always this visceral sphere white soldiers had of Indian attacks throughout American history, despite it not really being much more aggressive than their own tactics. Still, the Bluecoats routed and the Cherokee seized the battery. Unfortunately for Pike's men, once the charge was over, they lost any semblance of discipline. They really hadn't been trained. No one was training in normal line tactics in the Cherokee Nation. They milled around, ignoring orders, gaping in astonishment at the battle and cheering their victory. Confederate writers would later criticize Cherokee discipline, but this is how lots of new, untrained soldiers in the Civil War reacted to their first battle. And this was also a military context that the Cherokee didn't really grasp. The linear tactics of most Civil War battles were totally foreign to their concept of warfare. The result was that when another Union battery fired on the Cherokee positions, they were like, nope, and raced back to the rear, taking cover in the tree line. Some Confederate reports depicted the Indians as being totally shattered, so demoralized that they were useless for the rest of the battle. But this wasn't quite true. They wouldn't fight in open ground like the white soldiers. They thought that was stupid. But they knew how to fight their own way. They kept up a withering musket and rifle fire from the tree line, preventing the Union soldiers from recovering the guns. There was also a much darker controversy about the Cherokees' conduct at Pea Ridge. Union soldiers claimed that Pike's Indians had scalped and mutilated some of the enemy dead, sparking an exchange after the battle of furious accusations between the Union and Confederate commanders. Now, at least eight corpses were definitely scalped, but the pearl clutching over scalping after, the de after someone's already dead, when people are getting blown to pieces by cannonballs, seems a little silly to me. Mutilation of the dead is something that always raises people's blood pressure, though. Pike resented the charges of scalping and cruelty, especially when his Confederate bosses ordered him to restrain his so-called savages. In the broader scope of Pea Ridge, though, the Cherokee charge couldn't make much difference. 
McCulloch and McIntosh were both killed in action, and this meant that Pike, who, remember, had not been told even what the plan was, held the senior rank on this section of the battlefield. Even if he'd known what to do, it was too late. The Confederates retreated, with Stand Wadey's Cherokees fighting the rearguard action as they escaped. This fight was only one small part of the larger Battle of Pea Ridge, but like the rest of the battle, it had been a Union victory. Pea Ridge was the decisive battle of the Civil War west of the Mississippi. It solidified Union control of Missouri and opened the way for Union invasion of Arkansas. But for our story, it had two major effects. First, it diminished the assistance the South could give to the Five Nations. They had supplies and stuff that they were about to send to them, but after Pea Ridge, when Arkansas was in danger, they kept those supplies for themselves. Second, Pea Ridge created an opening for the Union to strike into Indian Territory. And there were thousands of people in refugee camps who had just survived the Trail of Blood on Ice who were pretty darn eager to get some revenge. In spring 1862, General James G. Blunt, the Union commander in Kansas, received permission to raise three regiments of the Indian Home Guard. These pro-Union Indian regiments officially infantry but usually mounted just because they had the horses, consisted of both refugees from the Five Nations, including Trail of Blood on Ice survivors, and local Indians from Kansas. These regiments were mustered in, took an oath, given Union equipment, and armed with Union weapons. They would be in Union uniforms. And the Indian Home Guards also included both free black refugees and former slaves, including Phoebe Banks' dad, who would escape with Apotheahola. Guys, it is possible these were the first African-American soldiers to be officially mustered in during the Civil War. This occurred before the federal government authorized the raising of so-called colored troops, the black regiments that we're familiar with. Most historians, this might be overlooked. These might be the first black soldiers enlisted in the Civil War. I would need to actually do archival research to confirm this. I need to go like I need to go to Oklahoma and look at the muster rolls. And guys, there are only so many hours in the day, and, you know, I'm in Georgia. But still. Black troops were organized more officially later in 1862, when the first Kansas colored volunteers were established to fight Confederate forces in Missouri and Indian Territory. We will see many black soldiers throughout this episode. Either way, in summer 1862, General Blunt decided to mount a major expedition into Indian Territory. The main motivation was the refugees, who were starving and freezing and just taking up all these resources and space, and they kept begging to return to their homes. Just, hey, we'll go if you escort us in there. General Blunt was ordered to escort them in there and defeat the local Confederate Indians, especially Stand Wadey's Cherokee Regiment. Wadey was constantly leading raids out of Cherokee territory into Missouri and Kansas, burning farms and attacking Union outposts. Blunt hoped to return the refugees to their homes and get rid of Stand Wadey, who was already a big annoyance and would remain a big annoyance. Blunt himself would stay at Baxter Springs, Kansas, the main Union supply base to coordinate the logistics. So the expedition was led by Colonel William Weir. It included five white regiments, five regular Union regiments, and the units of the new Indian Home Guard, about 6,000 men in all. The first Indian Home Guard contained Muscogees and Seminoles from the Trail of Blood on Ice, while the second Indian Home Guard was a catch-all of Cherokees and all the smaller tribes. This included Delawares, Caddo's, Osages, and Kickapoos, uh, tribes that either lived in Indian Territory or lived in Kansas. 
These units left Baxter Springs on June 28, 1862, headed into northeast Oklahoma, the Cherokee Nation. The Union attack caught the Confederates off balance. They didn't really have any major forces assembled to counter it. The Confederate Cherokees asked for reinforcements, but they only got a battalion of Missouri militia. Colonel Weir's forces met them in the Battle of Locust Grove on July 3, 1862. The 9th Kansas and the 1st Indian Home Guard thrashed the Missouri militia and sent them packing. Meanwhile, the 6th Kansas routed Stan Wadey's Cherokee Regiment. The fleeing Confederates raced in panic through the Cherokee capital of Tahlequah, spreading the news of the Confederate defeat. The aftermath of Locust Grove saw the fragile Cherokee unity, the unity that John Ross had jumped through so many ho hoops to preserve, finally shatter. With the victorious Union force in their territory, with the example of the Indian Home Guard, and feeling abandoned by the Confederates, many Cherokees finally felt safe enough to come out and say, we declare for the Union. The first Cherokee Mounted Rifles, the Penn Indians, switched sides basically immediately. They had never been happy fighting for the Confederates, as you can tell by their defection at Shustotalasaw. The Confederate Cherokees became Union Cherokees overnight, forming most of the new 3rd Indian Home Guard. The final symbol of the Cherokee split was the surrender of John Ross. Colonel Weir sent a small expedition to Tahlequah to arrest the old chief. John Ross went willingly. I can only imagine a conversation went something like, Oh no, please don't arrest me and make me join the Union. You know, the thing I was going to do, wanted to do anyway. So yeah, he went a little too willingly for a lot of people's tastes. He was taken to Missouri where he repudiated all his treaties with the Confederacy and reaffirmed his allegiance to the Union. The Cherokee chief, like so many of his warriors, had switched sides to the side he always wanted to be on anyway. Around 9,000 Cherokees, about half the nation, openly declared for the Union. But unfortunately for all of them, the Union squandered their victory. Rather than exploiting his success at Locust Grove, Colonel Weir went on a 10-day drinking bender, which I guess isn't too uncommon in the Civil War, huh? He can, uh, he can find General Sibley and join him in the drinking wagon. Colonel Frederick Salomon of the 9th Wisconsin arrested Weir and assumed command. But then he marched back to Baxter Springs in Kansas, leaving thousands of Cherokees who had openly declared for the Union at the mercy of Stand Weighty. Because in John Ross's absence, the Confederate Cherokee declared Stand Weighty the new principal chief. The unraveling of the Cherokee had disastrous consequences for the Indian Territory. The Cherokee Civil War had truly begun, with hatreds that had built up for decades boiling over into a mutual reign of terror. Penn Indians and Stand Wadey's regiment raided and counter-raided, burned houses, destroyed crops, butchered livestock, and straight-up murdered people. A new flood of pro-Union Indians fled north to Kansas, rather than suffer in the new circle of desolation forming around the Cherokee Territory. The Civil War in general out in this part of the United States was much more brutal than in the East. Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, and Indian Territory swarmed with guerrillas, raiders, and just out-and-out -out bandits. The rare large-scale battle occasionally sucked these units in, before they scattered back into the mountains and their prairies and the forests and went back to unconventional warfare. The guerrillas were chaos personified, virtually uncontrollable, and un they could not be disciplined by either side. 
The bitterness ran deep, and no one was more bitter than Apothlea Hola, ancient, dying, but still powerful, vibrating with decades of rage. When he was asked if he would show mercy to the families of pro-Confederate Indians, this is what he said. When a man has a bad breed of dogs, the best way to get rid of them is to kill the bitch. His attitude was basically, spare the women and children? Heck no, they're going to create more traitors. Get rid of them. When the grand old man died on March 22, 1863, his faction survived, make turning his vengeance into reality. The problem was, throughout the Civil War, neither the Union nor the Confederacy could really control the Indian Territory. It was too big. Neither side had that many troops out here. Logistics were extremely difficult. There were no railroads, and long wagon trains were vulnerable to raids. Only a few thousand troops could be supported at any given time, but these were never enough to provide real security for the civilians. They couldn't stop the guerrillas. And this meant that neither side was able to protect civilians. The Indian Territory was turning into no man's land, ungovernable by either side. One Confederate soldier remembered riding through Indian Territory in 1862. The western portions of this Indian Territory are all ruined and laid waste. All improvements are burned, all stock all driven off or killed, and the entire western settlements are deserted. Tis sad and made my heart ache as I beheld settlements and farms where a few months ago families lived in plenty and pleasure, now deserted and ruined, nothing but the rock chimneys left. War is hungry. War devours. War is an insatiable beast. No one was safe. Rich or poor, free or slave, black, white or Indian. It didn't matter what side you were on. Stand Wadey's men or some pin Indians would show up outside your house at night to demand supplies. If you had a military-aged male, your son or your husband or your brother or your father, they would force him to join. If he resisted, they would kill him or they would kill you. They might just kill you anyway or burn your house. Heck, they might not even care which side you were on. Lots of guerrilla bands were barely connected to the Union or Confederacy. They were basically just robbers or bandits, barely even pretending to be fighting for a cause. You may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And these weren't just random people. They knew who you were. They, they knew your sympathies. They might have been your neighbors. They might have been your friends or your kinsmen. Their family may have helped your family on the Trail of Tears. But none of that mattered now. The wolf had come. By 1863, virtually every military-aged male in the Indian Territory had joined one side or the other. They could be motivated by anger, fear, a desire for revenge. There was plenty of revenge to go around. Or just to keep their families out of harm's way. Or even the desire to fulfill the warrior tradition of their ancestors. One young Muscogee man remembered his mother telling him that he had to fight, and she didn't even care too much about which side. But he was a man, there was a war, and he had to fight. He ended up joining the 1st Creek Regiment, uh, the Confederate Regiment, mainly because his cousins had. He, he didn't care. He just had to fight. And neutrality was not an option. James Gregory of the Muscogee wanted to stay neutral. His family wanted no part of the fight. That didn't matter. He and his father were both kidnapped by the Confederate Muscogees, and his father died at their hands. Gregory escaped to Kansas. He wrote later, we had not taken sides, 
but were trying to care for our property. The results were that the writer now has a military record for service rendered in the 9th Kansas Cavalry. Yes, so he went off and joined a Union regiment. James Gregory hadn't been interested in war, but, you know... Behind the men, women and children had to get on as best they could, often at the mercy of whoever showed up on their doorstep. And with a bunch of barely disciplined, violent men with guns roaming around, with women unprotected at home, vulnerable and helpless, well, I don't have to spell that out for you, do I? The storm was here, the wolf had come, and all they could do was hunker down and try to survive. By 1863, the Union was ready to make another big push into Indian territory. In spring of that year, Colonel William A. Phillips led the Indian Home Guard units back into the territory, escorting about a thousand Cherokee, Muscogee, and Seminole refugee families from their camps in Missouri. Phillips set up a strong point at Fort Gibson, close to modern-day Muscogee, Oklahoma, which would be the main Union base for the rest of the war. But this did not go unchallenged. Newly promoted Brigadier General Douglas Cooper gathered around 5,000 Confederates at Honey Springs to the south. Phillips called for reinforcements, and General James Blunt decided to come in person, sending a large supply train ahead to feed his soldiers on their campaign. Stand Wadey's Confederates, his, his Cherokee, tried and failed to ambush this wagon train in a series of skirmishes at Cabin Creek. Blunt's supplies and reinforcements made it to Fort Gibson and in July 1863, he marched south against Douglas Cooper and the pro-Confederate Indians. The Battle of Honey Springs, their confrontation, was the Civil War's largest battle in the Indian Territory. The Union was outnumbered. Blunt only had around 3,000 soldiers against Cooper's 5,000. The Confederate forces contained most of their allied Indian regiments, along with some Texas cavalry. The Union forces included the three Indian Home Guard units, and also the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry, and some white units from Colorado, Kansas, and Wisconsin. Honey Springs was the largest battle in the Civil War where white soldiers were a minority on both sides. The majority of the soldiers on both sides were either black or Indian. The two forces faced off on July 17, 1863, the Battle of Honey Springs. On the Union side, the white commander of the 1st Kansas Colored Volunteers, Colonel James M. Williams, gave a speech to his African-American soldiers. We are engaged in a holy war. You know what the soldiers of the Southern armies are fighting for, the continued existence and extension of slavery on this continent, and if they are successful, to take you and your wives and children back into slavery. Show the enemy this day that you know how and are eager to fight for your freedom. Yeah, it doesn't sound to me like Colonel Williams was confused about what the war was about. On the Confederate side, Colonel Chili McIntosh, son of the man that Apotheahola had had murdered, gave a speech to the Muscogees of the Second Creek Volunteers. He said, When you first saw the light, it was said of you, a man-child is born. You must prove today whether or not this saying of you was true. Man must die sometime, and since he must die, he can find no nobler death than that which overtakes him while fighting for his home, his fires, and his country. The Union opened the battle with an artillery duel, and light skirmishing broke out along the line. But it soon became clear that the Confederates had a major disadvantage. 
their gunpowder had been dampened by the weather and turned into a useless mess. Well, you're asking, James, why wasn't the Union's gunpowder dampened? Because the Confederates had gotten this gunpowder from Mexico, so it wasn't manufactured to stand up to the humidity. This fact would cost them. Still, the fighting was fierce, with white, black, and Indian forces all holding their own. The, Indian the Indians and Texans in their loose skirmish lines. The Union volunteers, white and black, in disciplined line formations. As the battle swirled, the second Indian home guard actually accidentally drifted into the crossfire. They accidentally found themselves between the Union and Confederate lines, taking fire from both sides. So they fell back. But this tricked the Texas troops into thinking the Union was retreating. The Texans launched a reckless counterattack, which brought them within point-blank range of the first Kansas. The black soldiers stood their ground, three deep, raised their muskets and let off a rippling volley, catching the Texans in the flank and sending them running. This was the turning point of the battle. The Confederates fell back, and the Union forces pursued. Soon the Confederate retreat turned into a rout. General Cooper had to abandon the valuable supply dump in Honey Springs, and only a stubborn rearguard action by the Choctaw and Chickasaw Regiment saved the Confederates from outright disaster. After treating his wounded and burying his dead, General Blunt moved on to capture Fort Smith, Arkansas, removing the main Confederate strongpoint, their main supply link, that connected Indian Territory to Arkansas and the rest of the Confederacy. The first Kansas Colored Volunteers and their outstanding performance at Honey Springs would be overshadowed by a much more famous unit of black soldiers. On the other side of the country, only a day after Honey Springs, Colonel Robert Gould Shaw died leading the 54th Massachusetts in their assault on Fort Wagner, the epic battle depicted in the movie Glory. But the first Kansas at Fulton won their battle the day before, and they didn't get no movie with Denzel Washington or Morgan Freeman. The first Kansas' victory is forgotten. The Battle of Honey Springs, small by Civil War standards, was the decisive battle in the Indian Territory. Later Oklahoma historians compared it to Gettysburg, which had taken place in Pennsylvania only two weeks earlier. It's, everything gets compared to Gettysburg. It's like one of those Gettysburg, Waterloo, everything gets compared to Gettysburg. The other Gettysburg of the West, I guess. Honey Springs broke Confederate control of Indian Territory. The Union was on top for good now, and the South would never again muster the forces to fight a major battle in the area. But that didn't mean the war was over. The beast was still hungry. The struggle between blue and gray continued to turn Indian territory into a wasteland. The Battle of Honey Springs transformed the Civil War in the Indian Territory. At the beginning, the pro-Confederate factions had been on top and used their power to persecute the pro-Union Indians. But now the shoe was on the other foot. The Union was ascendant, and their allied Indians were ready to dish out some vengeance. They were all out of mercy. The violence that had already drowned the Cherokee was about to spread to the other four nations. 
The aftermath of Honey Springs, late 1863, saw a new wave of refugees fleeing Indian territory, but this time they were heading south. The flight of the pro-Confederate Indians was remembered as the Stampede. Families loaded up everything they had in their carts and headed for somewhere, anywhere, away from the shooting and burning and killing. A lot of these pro-Confederates, I keep saying using that term, but that doesn't mean they loved the Confederacy. They had picked up, made a hard choice and ended up picking the wrong side. Almost 18,000 pro-Confederate Cherokee and Muscogee ended up in miserable refugee camps along the Texas-Oklahoma border. Behind them, the Indian Territory continued to slide into lawlessness. The Union garrisons at Fort Smith and Fort Gibson were too weak to control the countryside, and bandits and guerrillas roamed at will. The Union bandits were often referred to as Jayhawkers, a reference to pro-Union militants during Bleeding Kansas. The Confederate raiders were often called Bushwhackers, but they were basically interchangeable, more like street gangs or just outlaw bands than anything else. Many famous Wild West figures like Jesse James got their start as Western guerrillas in the Civil War, though they mostly operated in Missouri. With this circle of violence just spreading across the territory, with their homes burnt and their fields ruined, most pro-Union Indians were still unable to return to their homes, even in supposedly Union-occupied territory. They clustered in refugee camps around the Union garrison forts. The Union forces wanted to get them back out on their farms so they could feed themselves and like sort of try to restore the economy and unburden the logistic situation, but any family out on their own would just get snapped up by the raiders. The refugee camps were crowded and unsanitary, but it was that or go out on your own and get raped and murdered. So Union officials and Indian agents had their hands full trying to feed a growing number of refugees. And Stand Weighty was always out there. The Union may have occupied Cherokee Nation, but he was not going to make it easy for him. In November 1863, Wadey slipped past Union forces and hit the Cherokee capital of Tahlequah, executing several people and burning John Ross's house to the ground. He wrote to his wife that he had executed Ross's son-in-law, an old family friend of theirs who, oh, shame, he refused to surrender. Wadey felt like he was getting an eye for an eye, remembering how his brother and cousins had been gunned down by Ross's allies back in 1839. Being on Union Confederate sides was one thing, but you know, you killed my brother, you killed my cousins, just kind of hits different. Wadey and the other Confederate Indians were a constant menace within Union-controlled territory, returning month after month, burning houses and stealing food and even just taking farming tools. What That doesn't do you any good, but it causes the families to starve. And the Union responded in kind. In December 1863, the Indian Home Guard launched a long raid into Chickasaw and Choctaw Territory, burning and laying waste as they went. All five nations were driving each other into destitution, a cycle of violence where yesterday's atrocities justified today's revenge, and today's atrocities became tomorrow's revenge. Even small children lived in a constant state of terror. Rebecca Nguyen, wife of a Cherokee officer in the Indian Home Guard, remembered the cold fear that mothers felt for their sons. The boys had to be kept out of sight for the Confederates were watching for them. If those boys were large enough to force into the army, they would be taken and perhaps killed, and even the smaller boys were sometimes killed, and not always by the Confederates, but sometimes it was the Pin Indians who killed those boys. 
Boys had no place in war, they never do. But war was interested in them nevertheless. War is a hungry beast, it doesn't care who it consumes. The five nations inflicted most of this violence on themselves. Union and Confederate white troops and even black troops would take part in some of the burning and looting, but for the most part, Cherokee killed Muskogee, Muskogee raped Cherokee, and Seminole torches burned Choctaw homes. We've seen Stan Wadey executing Confederate Cherokees, and Penn Indians would ride up and execute Confederate Cherokees. One Cherokee woman named Abijah Hicks saw her husband murdered by Penn Indians, then had her house burned a month later. They weren't even pro-Confederate, he just refused to join them. But nothing broke her as much as seeing her father's printing press, which had printed Bibles and hymnals and school books in the Cherokee, Choctaw, and Muscogee languages, ruined and destroyed, even the type being carried off or melted. The Christian colleges were burned, the churches desecrated, the fields lay in waste. The Five Nations Civil War was consuming everything they had rebuilt after the Trail of Tears. To make matters worse, the so-called wild Indians of the Western Plains, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, Kiowa, and Comanche, were now at war with the Union. Before the war, they had been held back by uh, U.S. Army garrisons, but those garrisons were gone. The Comanche were basically at war with everyone, it was their default mode, and neither side could stop them from pillaging the western fringes of the territory. They made the Chickasaws' lives a living hell. Indian territory was swamped by violence. Stan Wadey was promoted to Brigadier General in the Confederate Army on May 10, 1864, the only Indian on either side to achieve a general's rank. He continued his raids throughout 1864, including two major ones that would make him famous. The Union had been sending steamboats up the Arkansas River from Little Rock up to Fort Gibson, with supplies for the Indian refugees located at Fort Gibson. But the Arkansas River ran very low in the summer months and passed within easy reach of Confederate territory. On June 15, 1864, Stand Wadey's raiders attacked the steamboat J.R. Williams when it ran aground on its way upriver. They overwhelmed the guards, seized the cargo, and burned the boats, destroying supplies much needed by the Indian refugees. Stand Wadey's ambush of the J.R. Williams is one of three times in history, that I know of, that soldiers on horseback have attacked and captured a naval vessel. The other two, well, maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll get to those. The action didn't really have much impact on the war overall, it was mainly symbolic. Three months later though, Wadey achieved a much greater victory. On September 19, 1864, Stan Wadey's Cherokees and Richard Gano's Texas Cavalry captured a massive Union supply train in the Second Battle of Cabin Creek. They seized as much as $1.5 million worth of food, clothing, and other goods that the refugees desperately needed. Wadey's victories only made the suffering of his Cherokee people worse, though by this point he probably didn't regard the pro-Union Cherokees as his people. But there was one group that Stan Wadey really, really didn't regard as his people. During the Cabin Creek Raid, Wadey's forces came across some of the first Kansas colored volunteers harvesting hay for their animals. The Confederates were not in the habit of taking prisoners when it came to black Union soldiers, and the pro-Confederate Indians were no different. Several dozen black soldiers were run down and executed, some of them as they were trying to surrender. Similar incidents occurred throughout the Civil War. Nathan Bedford Forrest's massacre of black prisoners at Fort Pillow was the most infamous, but there had been recent incidents closer to home. 
During a campaign in Arkansas in April 1864, the Choctaw Regiment had massacred and scalped black soldiers in the Battle of Poison Spring. Word spread, and soon the black soldiers would take no Confederate prisoners, culminating in a payback massacre at the Battle of Jenkins Ferry. The racial war, black versus white, black versus Indian, Indian versus white, lent another terrible edge to the fighting. But Wadey's raid at Cabin Creek was the last significant engagement within Indian territory. By the time 1865 rolled around, even the burning and destroying had died down, partially because there was just a lot less left to burn and destroy. Most homes were abandoned, all the livestock was gone. The people had fled or scraped out a living with broken families or broken homes, staring at the horizon in paranoia, never knowing if a bandit or gorilla would appear to take everything they had. Refugee camps in Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas remained packed, miserable, starving. Many families were permanently separated. Enslaved husbands or wives had been carried off by their masters, never to see their children again. Mothers had lost children or children had lost mothers in the trail of blood on ice. Cherokee or Muscogee or Choctaw teenagers had been dragged from their home by this or that guerrilla band, and their parents never knew what happened to them. One Indian chronicler wrote after the war was over, The war to preserve the Union of States surged over the boundaries of the Indian Territory and swept the Indians from their homes, scattered them like leaves from the forest to the ends of the earth. And then, one day, it was over. In April 1865, word came from the East that some dude named Robert E. Lee had surrendered to some other dude named Ulysses S. Grant at some place called Appomattox. Names that meant nothing to the Five Nations, and we can see why. Their own war was a small part of the American Civil War, but from where they sat, it didn't look small at all. None of the other stuff that happened East? What, what did that matter? On May 26, 1865, a month and a half after Appomattox, General Edmund Kirby Smith surrendered all Confederate forces west of the Mississippi. But Stan Wadey did not come in. Wadey knew what defeat would mean for the Five Nations, not just those that had been pro-Confederate. When he had made his choice back in 1861, it seemed like the South had a chance to win this thing. But now he stared into the face of defeat. He lingered on for a month, hoping to get some better settlement. But the Five Nations surrendered individually. As the Confederate cause died across the United States, only one Confederate general remained at large, and that was Stan Wadey. On June 23, 1865, Brigadier General Stan Wadey, Principal Chief of the Cherokee, the last Confederate general at large, rode into Dokesville, the capital of the Choctaw Nation. He signed the terms of his surrender two and a half months after Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox. This marked the end of the American Civil War in the Indian Territory, and in the United States as a whole. Stand Wadey's surrender, a date left out of the history books, was the true end of hostilities. But what was left? The territory was ruined. One Indian agent wrote in 1865, Blackened chimneys of fine houses are now all that is left. Fences burned and farms laid waste. The air of ruin and desolation envelops the whole country. None have wholly escaped. All the accounts from this period use the same set of words. Desolation, waste, burned, destroyed. The churches, the schools, the colleges, the Indian language printing presses, the houses, the fields, the fences, everything. Everything. 
all of it was ruined, including many of the people. The Five Nations' losses in the American Civil War were nothing short of catastrophic. There hadn't been that many of them to begin with. The Trail of Tears had seen to that. But in terms of the damage done, it had been a second Trail of Tears. Compared to the United States' overall loss rate of around 2.1% in the American Civil War, none of the Five Nations lost less than 10% of their population. One in nine Chickasaws were gone. One in six Choctaws. And most of the war had avoided them. They had been the lucky ones. The Cherokee, the largest tribe, lost 4,000 out of 22,000 of their people in the war, about one in six. The Seminoles had begun the war at 2,500, according to the census, but came out with 2,000, one in five. But the Muscogee lost a quarter of their population. All of these were people who had been shot or beaten or stabbed or hacked to death frozen in the trail of blood on ice, starved or died of disease in the refugee camps, executed by the guerrillas, perished in the harsh winters with no food or shelter. Just because they weren't killed in battle didn't mean they weren't casualties of war. No part of the United States suffered more, suffered worse than the Indian Territory in the American Civil War. Nothing else comes close. Sherman's march doesn't hold a candle to the damage done in Oklahoma. And people came back to nothing. They came back to ruins. They came back to next-door neighbors who might have been on the other side, who may have done the burning. But there was nothing to be done. After all that, the reconciliation went surprisingly well. Not great, but surprisingly well. Sure, there were many of them who remained bitter long into the future, especially someone like Stan Wadey, who would be furious and bitter to the end of his days. But most of the Five Nations realized that there was no point in rehashing anything. They had to work together to rebuild. The Union of Confederates, whatever they had been, they had to reunite. But the war had further consequences. Consequences that came from Washington, D.C. The U.S. government decided that by officially siding with the Cherokee, the five nations had broken the treaties that had protected them before the war. The U.S. government refused to negotiate peace terms with the Confederate-aligned leaders, only with the Union chiefs. So even though Stan Wadey went to Washington to make his case, only John Ross had any say over what happened to the Cherokee. The United States refused to acknowledge the factional splits. Ross resumed his role as principal chief of all the Cherokee. All five nations had to sign separate treaties with the U.S. government, treaties that were notably harsher than the ones they had had before the war. Even the pro-Union Indians, even the Allied Indians, weren't spared from these harsher treaties. Once again, the U.S. government took a minority of Indians and applied their actions to the majority. The five nations would have to give up a lot of the rights they had managed to preserve after the Trail of Tears. There was one major condition of the Five Nations Peace Treaties that remains controversial today. The Civil War had freed the slaves, and now the U.S. government decreed that the Five Nations' former slaves, the freedmen, would become citizens of their respective tribes. So any freed slaves the Cherokee had held before, they were now Cherokee citizens. For many Indians, this was an outrage that the government could tell them who was or wasn't Indian. But many of these freedmen had nowhere else to go. Literally. Some of them only spoke the language of their former masters. I've read multiple accounts from this one woman who only spoke Muscogee. She didn't even speak English. Where were they supposed to go? So the former slaves, the former enslaved people of the five nations became members of those nations, at least legally. 
But many Indians never accepted this and they would undo it as soon as they could. The racial dispute, the blood origin dispute within the five nations lasted for generations with constant legal battles and laws and issues trying to solve this thorny issue of who is a Chickasaw? Who is a Muscogee? Who is a Cherokee? Is it a blood thing? A legal thing? A race thing? Was the forced acceptance of freedmen a step forward for racial equality or a step backward for Indian rights and autonomy? Was being a Cherokee or a Seminole a matter of descent, a matter of law, or a matter of culture? Well, guys, uh, thank God this was resolved a long time ago. Thank God that a U.S. District Court ruling that confirmed the Cherokee citizenship of the freedmen and their descendants finally came down in the distant bygone year of 2017. Thank God that the Cherokee removed the words by blood, saying only Cherokee by blood were Cherokee, words that have been added in, um, let's look, 2007 to exclude the descendants of slaves from Cherokee citizenship. Thank God those words were taken back out of the Cherokee Constitution in the ancient year of 2021. Because as we all know, history stays in the past. There's no way that the consequences of the American Civil War are still being played out in courtrooms and opinion pages and debates in the 21st century, with legal cases happening literally last year to decide outstanding issues from the American Civil War. No. We all know that the past stays in the past. If you want to know more about this, look up the Cherokee Freedmen Controversy. Those words. It gets complicated really quickly. But this wasn't the only condition of the new treaties. As punishment for siding with the Confederacy, the federal government confiscated land from the Five Nations, land that before the war they had promised, been promised would be theirs forever. The government used the confiscated lands as a dumping ground for any Indian tribe in the other 49 states they felt like getting rid of. People from all over the United States were deported to Indian territory, anyone who stood in the way of white settlement and progress. This eventually included the <clears throat> Ottawa, Miami, Wyandotte, Potawatomi, Kiowa, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Comanche, Pawnee, Modoc, Osage, the list goes on. Even the Nez Perce would wind up here after the end of their war in 1877, see episode 3. Pretty much every inconvenient Indian tribe was crammed into the territory that the five nations had been told would be theirs. But even this wasn't enough. By the 1880s, white settlers, known as boomers, demanded that the Indian territory be opened up, that the Indians weren't using the land properly with their ideas of collective ownership, that these so-called savages really had no right to all this territory. Some settlers, called Sooners, moved onto the land before the government even gave them permission. The titles of Boomer and Sooner are still used as like sports mascots in Oklahoma today. The Five Nations and all their new neighbors protested. They had seen this movie before. They knew they were about to be swamped in their own territory, lands they had been told would never be part of any state. But the government ignored them and said the treaties didn't matter. Just like Andrew Jackson had done way back in the 1830s, the law was irrelevant when white people wanted the land bad enough. And so it went. In 1887, Congress passed the Dolls Act, which decreed that remaining Indian lands within the territory could no longer be held communally. Instead, they would be allocated in 160-acre plots by household, a process known as severalty. No more communal ownership. No, you have to get used to the white man's ways, where each family has their individual property. 
And oh, would you look at that? That leaves a lot of spare acreage left over. Acreage that the white settlers need. On April 22nd, 1889, a whole line of white settlers with carts and horses with all their worldly possessions lined up at the border of what had been Indian Territory. At noon, the federal agent fired a gun and the settlers took off like a race into the territory to stake their claims and grab whatever land they could. It was called the Land Rush of 1889, treated as a romantic story in my old high school history textbook, but it was a calamity for the American Indian. Oklahoma City was literally built in a day on what had been Muscogee and Seminole Territory. By the end of the year, 62,000 white settlers had overwhelmed the Five Nations and the other Indians. What they had all feared back before the Trail of Tears had come to pass. The tribes, looking for any way to retain any semblance of autonomy, called a convention and sent a petition to Congress to establish their own state. They wanted the eastern half of the former Indian Territory to be established as the state of Sequoia, named for the Cherokee genius who had created the Cherokee syllabary, the written language, one of, their most, one of the most brilliant people in American history. But Congress had no intention of allowing the Indians to have their own state. What are these red savages going to have senators, governors? No, you got to be joking. Their thoughts, not mine. Instead, Congress approved the settler-dominated state of Oklahoma in 1907, which absorbed the former Indian Territory. Oklahoma would be a white-governed state, the Indians less than a quarter of the population in the land they had suffered for on the Trail of Tears, had been promised in the government treaties, and had killed each other over during the American Civil War. The final remnant of Indian autonomy had vanished from the American continent. In 1931, during the Great Depression, Cherokee author Len Riggs wrote a play called Green Grow the Lilacs about the experiences of Indian Territory's people on the verge of statehood. At the end of the play, when a federal agent arrives to arrest the protagonist, the farmers remind him of their Indian blood, that this is their land given to them, that to them, the United States is a foreign country. But in the 1940s, Riggs's play, famous in its time, virtually forgotten now, was adapted into something unrecognizable. Rodgers and Hammerstein's famous musical, Oklahoma, replaced Riggs's folk songs with peppy made-for-film showpieces and turned the wistful and nostalgic original play into a cinematic tour de force, bouncy, full of energy, lots of fun. And any reference to the Indians at all was deleted. The word Indian does not appear in the script. Oklahoma became a story of white settlers claiming a majestic land about to be a brand new state with nary a mention of the people who had lived there before. The five nations were scrubbed from the play that one of their children had written, scrubbed from the story of Oklahoma, just as they had been scrubbed from their original homelands, just as they have been scrubbed from the story of the American Civil War. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Y'all, I don't know about you, but that was pretty heavy. Today's episode was not for the faint of heart. I got emotional a few times reading and writing about this. 
That was the civil war in Indian territory, a side of the war that almost never shows up in mainstream histories of the conflict that has almost vanished from American memory of the struggle. I did my reading for this episode and I was fascinated, like I said in the intro, because I knew nothing about it. I didn't even know this would be an episode until I read Mary Jane Ward's excellent book, When the Wolf Came, The Civil War in the Indian Territory. Available on Audible, I will remind you, thanks to my new sponsor. And guys, if today's story was hard to listen to sometimes, think about how hard it was to experience. I took great care today to point out how the divisions within the five nations before the Civil War, the legacies of violence and anger and betrayal that were formed before and after the Trail of Tears, bled over into the bigger American Civil War. This was a much nastier, somehow much more personal conflict than I think most people think of when they think of the Civil War. And I'll remind you, most of the damage done to the Indian Territory was done by the five nations themselves. They were fighting their own internal civil wars over their own internal issues, and that mixed with race and politics and bitterness and revenge, and of course outside factors, to turn the Indian Territory into no man's land. And as horrible as this story was, I did my best to keep it centered on the five nations themselves, including the American African-American citizens and enslaved people. I told the story from their perspective, the viewpoint between blue and gray, not the Union or Confederate perspective. And we can see that from this standpoint, it looks a lot less simple than normal stories about the American Indians as either mindless savages or helpless victims, the two stereotypes in American history. They stand out more as people, people who disagreed with each other, had issues, had opinions, had thoughts, had hopes and dreams and fears, and sometimes they had choices. A lot of these were very hard choices. Some were made by the nation's leaders, to comply with removal or resist it, to side with the North or the South. And there were thousands of individual choices— to join a Apotleahola or stay home, to desert one side and join another, to survive on your farm or take your family to the refugee camp, to join Stained Wadey's Regiment or the Indian Home Guard or some other unit, or for someone else to. If you were black, you could try to escape your master, maybe even join the U.S. Colored Troops, or stay with your owner and your family where it might be safer. None of these choices was easy. None of them was really, honestly, wrong. It's hard to even see the Union as... I consider the Union to be the moral side of the Civil War, the most moral side. But looking at what went on in Indian Territory, we can understand why someone would choose to join the Confederates. None of these choices was easy. All of them were forced on the people that had to make them. The five nations and the black people who suffered in the Territory during the Civil War were not just passive agents in history. They had agency. They were individuals who made choices. They were steering a course across history, not just drifting on its waves. When we recenter history from the normal protagonists, usually white folks, that's just, that's just the default, to look at it from another perspective, it becomes much more complicated and much more human. But the waves devoured them. No matter what choice they made, the wolf came. And guys, one of the big things I tried to hammer home in this episode was how ugly, how brutal the Civil War really was, even outside the battles. The popular image of the Civil War usually resembles the movie Gettysburg, long, neat lines of men shooting at each other in a controlled battlefield, far away from civilian destruction. But what I described today would have been very familiar to someone in Missouri, Arkansas, Kansas, Kentucky, East Tennessee, or West Virginia. 
These were all areas where guerrilla war, neighbor versus neighbor, personal, unchecked, merciless violence were extremely common. This was what the Civil War looked like at the sharp end, in the darkness, away from the movies and pretty battlefield parks and heroic paintings. This is what it really was. And I think that popular media's failure to portray that, to show the really ugly side of the Civil War, is actually a problem. Because people talk about Civil War today. A survey in August 2022, a couple months ago, reported that more than 40% of America thinks a civil war is somewhat likely in the next 10 years. And some people, I've heard some people, probably not you guys, but some people, even talk about civil war like it'll be a good thing, a way to fix something, defeat some political group they don't like. They talk about it easily, like it's going to be some abstract thing where they're going to win quickly and everything will be better. There's no way that when they say civil war, they can be thinking of Indian territory. They're thinking of a pretty picture, a movie, a heroic painting, a sudden wonderful event that will solve all their problems. I will say this. I'm going to get real. People who talk lightly of a civil war in the modern day, people who talk about it like it's going to be anything positive, do not know what the fuck they are talking about. If there is another civil war, it will look much less like Gettysburg and much more like what I have described today. It's not romance, glorious victories accompanied by strings and brass. It's houses burning, refugees fleeing in winter, rape, lots of rape, kidnapping, cold-blooded murder, robbery, banditry, racism, genocide, fear, and hatred. If this crap happens again, if the wolf comes again, you will not be safe. The people who talk about it like this will not be safe. You will have to make hard choices, bad choices, choices you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. No matter how big your house is, or how many guns you have, or how self-sufficient you are, or how strong or smart you are, or how much money you make, or even which side you choose, none of that will save you. The five nations were brave, strong, self-sufficient, well-armed, even wealthy by the standards of the time. And they chose the side they thought was gonna win, and it didn't save them. War is a beast, a hungry beast, and no amount of privilege or courage or righteousness or even money or power will save you from its hunger. You may not even be interested in war, but war will be interested in you. Next time anyone says anything about how violence against their neighbors, violence against the other people in their country might solve their problems, or how a civil war might be even remotely desirable, Think about the five nations. Think about what happened to the people caught between blue and gray. Pray that you never have to repeat Apothleahola's words. Pray you never have to say that now the wolf has come. Thanks for listening today. I hope this episode gives you some food for thought, whatever thoughts those might be. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Just oh, maybe warn them first. Or tell your enemies, especially if they ever start talking about how a civil war would totally be a good thing. If you want to read my sources, they are all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if, especially if, it's positive. All right, guys. A little less traumatic next time, hopefully. <laughs> I'll see you guys again in two weeks. Season two is rolling.
See you then, right here on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 